By the way, I entitled this morning's message, Examine and Reset Part 2. The reason your bulletin says Examine and Reset is that's not really what I was going to entitle the message. But I got so in a hurry yesterday to get the bulletins printed that I put the right scripture in, but I forgot to change the title. So I just thought, well, we'll just call it Part 2 because that's what pastors do. We just adapt and overcome, right? So this morning as we look at this passage, uh, and somebody please remind me to go over the uh, announcements after service, because uh, you know me, I'll forget. Um, I only put the first six verses, we're going to look at the entire chapter of Second Psalms today, um, but I only put the first six verses because we're going to look at a verse by verse, um, kind of expository, uh, if you will. Uh, an exposition of the first six verses kind of line by line, and then we're going to take the last uh, six verses of the chapter and we're going to kind of look at it more uh, in groups. <coughs> a lot of uh, Bible teachers and theologians say that really Psalms 2 and Psalms 1 were really to kind of together. And I heard that from several uh, and read that in several different commentaries that Psalms 1 and 2 is kind of like the opening gateway, if you will, into the book of Psalms. Psalms 1 is not the first psalm that was written, by the way. Psalms, the, the entire book of Psalms, um, well, verse, uh, Psalms 90 is considered to be the oldest psalm because it was a prayer uh, written uh, by Moses. And so that would be obviously the, a lot older than David, who we attribute a lot of the psalms to. But there's a couple different authors uh, of different psalms that are compiled in the book of Psalms uh, that span about a thousand years worth of history of God moving in the lives and in the hearts of his followers. And so I, I love uh, the book of Psalms. We consider it poetry. Hebrew poetry is a lot different, right, than what we consider poetry today, right? So we look at poetry today, it's got to have some kind of rhyme or some kind of rhythm, right? Uh, then we got things like limericks and all that kind of stuff, where Hebrew poetry is more about painting a picture, it's, it's more uh, about uh, explaining something in detail, right? So their songs were not so much about rhyming. There's a few psalms that are actually acrostics, right? So uh, each, the first letter of each line uh, walks down through the Hebrew alphabet, which is pretty cool. So I pray that you take time to really study the book of Psalms. A lot of times we look at it, we, there's a few that we know really well. Psalms 1 is one of my favorite, uh, but also, you know, it's 23rd Psalms. Uh, but there's so much, so much wisdom uh, and so much beauty contained uh, in the imagery that is in the book of Psalms that it's absolutely wonderful. And so we look at Psalms 2, but we really kind of have to refer back a little bit to Psalms 1. The first Psalm is actually kind of, you know, it's about blessed is the man who follows God. That he will, he's like a tree planted by the rivers of water, that he will bear fruit in his due time, right? So it's about uh, being anchored in God, right? When you look at a tree planted by the rivers of water, I mean, if you want a strong tree, make sure that you give it the right nutrients and plenty of water, right, and sunlight. So you think about a tree planted by the rivers of water would be a very strong tree that has a continual source of food. And that's what it says, you know, that one who walks with God is like a tree planted by the rivers of water. Um, and so then we go to Psalms 2, and it's a contrast of Psalms 1. Psalms 1 speaks of this, blessed is the man who walks you know, in the ways of God and does not counsel with the wicked. Psalms 2 is pointing out the state of the wicked world for those who do not follow God. And that's one we're really going to kind of center in, but the kind of two go together. So while we read Psalms 2, then we'll go to the Lord in prayer. Uh, I want you to maybe take time on your own to look at both of these Psalms together. Read them back to back. And maybe make a list of all the things that you see in Psalms 1 versus all the things you see in Psalms 2. And you will see a contrast between the two. Uh, and it paints quite the imagery, if you will. Psalms 2 starts like this. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs, and the Lord holds them in derision. 
Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O king, be wise and warned. O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let's pray. Father, we love you today, Lord, and we just pray, Lord, that our hearts would be open. Uh, Lord, not only to the reading of your word, but also to the preaching uh, of your word. Father, I pray, Lord, that you, uh, Lord, that you would impart your wisdom today. Lord, not through uh, my words, but through your words. Lord, we know that, Lord, it's not about me. It's all about you. And so, we, Father, we pray today, Lord, that your word would just capture our attention and our heart. That all who are here will decide, Lord, for themselves to truly follow you if they don't already. And we pray this, Lord, in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Y'all can be seated. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the great 19th century London preacher, um, he actually calls out this psalm as if it's a big drama. And there are four, four songs, if you will, or four verses or groups, four acts in a play, if you will, uh, in this. And each one has three verses. The first we see David giving the state of the world as it is. And then we see God's response to that. And then we see Jesus speak. So this is also a messianic psalm because we see the words of Jesus speaking in response to his father. And then at the end, we see David speak again with a word of warning and also of invitation. And so today we want to kind of look at line by line of the first six verses. As we said, Psalms 1, or Psalms 1 and 2 go together. Typically, you've got to realize that chapters and verse markings, um, that was done as the Bible was being compiled, as the, our early church fathers were working through, uh, you know, with the leadership of the Holy Spirit as to what books were be, to be contained in what we call the canon, Right? Uh, Canaan really just is a simple word that means ruler, right? As a measuring stick, if you will. Uh, and so as they were translating from the original languages of Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek uh, into other languages, uh, they started putting in chapters and verse markers so that you would know where to go. Because when you, especially when you see Hebrew, it's actually read from right to left, not left to right. Uh, and they do, it just kind of all goes together. And so we start seeing in our languages that the translators started putting in chapter and verse markers. And really, one and two should kind of go together uh, as maybe one big chapter, but it's kind of separated. Uh, but it does, it, it does have a purpose uh, in that it's really looking at two specific things. It all comes back to God, but we're looking at the blessed man. And now we're going to look at the cursed man. As we look at verse 1, we're going to kind of go together um, in a more of expository manner. I will tell you that the longer I preach and the, the more I study, I find myself uh, going more toward expository preaching, meaning that we look at the passage of Scripture and we break it down line by line. We do uh, obviously use supporting Scripture along with that because how do you interpret Scripture with Scripture? What do you do if a Scripture is not clear? You go into the Word and you find other areas where it may be clearer and then use that to help you understand that which may not be as clear. There are some things in the Scripture that we read and you know, that we're just not sure exactly um, you know, how to take that. And part of it's a mystery. And God says so. And so for those, we just have to trust God uh, in those uh, areas. And so when we look at Psalms 1 and then look at Psalms 2, uh, together, we kind of help 
uh, each other kind of understand what's being said here. And so in verse 1, it says this. Oh, by the way, I always like this funny line in case some of you are not not aware of my humor uh, or the fact that I am funny regardless of what my wife says, right? She's, you're not funny sometimes. Well, I think so, right? So <laughs> Brother Jimmy Williams, we was talking together one time. We was talking about different types of preaching, right? Different kind of sermon um, outlining techniques and things like that. And, you know, so there's a topical sermon where you're preaching on a specific topic, right? And there's a couple different ways of doing that. And then there's expository preaching. And Jimmy's like, I don't know much about that suppository preaching. That's just funny. I don't care who you are. There. You, some of y'all didn't get it. Suppository. Somebody explain what that is to people after church. That's funny. Let's go look at verse 1 together, if you will. Suddenly it's got that dead silence that makes everybody nervous, isn't it? Right? Verse 1 says this. Nations rage and people plot against God in vain. And so if we look at the first three verses, and I'll just read the first three again. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast their cords away from us. So in verse 1, we see that the nations rage and they plot against God in vain. Now I want you to think about that. When we look at the word plot there, H.P. Charles pulls out uh, or explains that the word that is translated uh, as the word plot in, in, in chapter 2 is actually the same word that is translated in chapter 1, verse 2, as meditates. It's a Hebrew word of haga. It means to meditate or devise, to muse or to imagine. Now, can you imagine somebody plotting against God? Isn't that just absolutely insane that somebody would absolutely just plot against God that somehow they thought that they could win against the holy God, but yet those who do not follow God, those who think that either God doesn't exist or if he does exist, he's a big cosmic bully, right? We hear that a lot in today's kind of language because God's word and his laws does not allow for some of the behavior that we'd see going on in the world today. And since the world wants to be right, they want to point out somehow as if they think that God is wrong, like he got it wrong. Like when you were designed and you were conceived, Jeremiah says, God told Jeremiah, I should say, that while you were in the womb, I knew you. Or when you were in the womb, I knew you. That means he knew Jeremiah before he was ever born. And so there is not a man or a woman that's ever born that God didn't know exactly who you are. And listen, God only made two species, male and female. But the world would say, oh, they got it wrong. There's all, listen, I don't know how many species they think we got at this point. You know, we have a, either an X or a Y chromosome, amen. God only made two. And biologically, we can tell that there are only two. But the world says, no, God made a mistake. The world would say, God made a mistake. I was born in the wrong body. No, you're not born in the wrong body. You just have a desire that is ungodly. And listen, church, I want to make sure you understand that they are not the only ones that are born with ungodly desires. The simple fact, you and I, we are all depraved and, and can do nothing good aside from God. It's easy for us to look at somebody that may, that may struggle with gender identity or something like that. Listen, but we should have love for those folks. A lot of times the church wants to get judgmental because the world is, is, is trying to tear us down and we want to respond in anger. But I want you to realize today that anger is not our response. It's not what God has called us to do. He's called us to love and lovingly tell people what the Word of God says. Anger is for Him. Now, God knew he'd get angry, so his word says to do what? Anger and sin not. Judgment is for him. And so when we think about plotting against God, we think about those people like the Richard Dawkins of the world that says there is no God. And when questioned, I love when, when, when Ben, uh, suddenly I can't think of his last name, uh, not Shapiro, um, who was it? Stein, yeah, when Ben Stein's money. Y'all remember that show? That's the dumbest thing. But anyway, Ben Stein, who's, who's very eloquent, also Jewish, 
You know, he was a great speech writer. As a matter of fact, I think he wrote speeches for uh, Ronald Reagan in his, in his early years and, and just a you know, very smart man. And when he questioned Richard Dawkins about how life began, he said, well, really not for sure. Maybe it formed on the back of some crystals and all this stuff. He said, so maybe it was God. He said, no, it wasn't God. He said, but you said you don't know how, he was, you don't know how the world came to be, so you don't know how it really started, so it could be God. He said, I don't know how it started, but I know it wasn't God. Is that not insane? Does that not sound like someone to you that is just overeducated and good for nothing? Now, I'm not to be judge and to say he doesn't have value or worth because he's made in God's image just like you and I. So he has value and he has worth. But his words against the holy God saying, I, know it was, I don't know how the, the earth started. I don't know how the world began. But I just know how it didn't which goes against every law of science because everything is plausible until proven otherwise. Ben Stein asked him, though, he says, well, what would you say? If you find out there is a God and you had to face him, what would you say? He said, I would say this. Why did you work so hard to hide yourself? Yet in Romans 1, we see that God says, by the things that are visible to us, we can clearly see that there is a God. A creator. Too many laws are at work to make the world operate in turn, to think that somehow it came to be by random mutations or choice. I know what you're thinking, but well, Huff, I'm glad I'm not one of those. I'm glad I'm not one of those who plot. Are you? Because when we think about plotting, we think about a Dr. Evil. Evil, right? You think about that guy, right? Who? What are we going to do? When we think about someone plotting, it's evil. But listen, when we look at that word, that word translated in chapter 1 is, is this. It says, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on the law he meditates day and night. So you may ask, how do we plot against God? Here's one way. Coming up with excuses to do what we want instead of following God's command. That's plotting against God. Anytime that we elevate ourselves over God, we have to first reconcile it in our mind. And that takes thought, my friends. Some people like to argue over how many parts are there to man. Right? That's what people like to argue. You know, is a man two parts? Soul and flesh? Or is he three? Soul, flesh, and intellect. The two different schools of thought are dichotomy. Di meaning two, like dice. Dichotomy versus trichotomy. Believing in man is two parts, believing man is three. I believe we see in Thessalonians, he said that we are to, to serve God with all of our body, all of our soul, and all of our mind. I tend to believe that we are three parts. And listen, the intellect is where we process everything. It's where you're hearing the word of God coming to you today. The soul is the seat of our emotions. But the intellect is where we process. And anyone who makes excuses or anyone who does that outside of God's law has to come into their mind and somehow reconcile it. Whether it's those who reconcile it by saying there is no God, so I will not follow his law. Or those who say that I'm following him, but yet some of those laws just aren't good for me. And so I'll take random, random verses of scripture and I will twist it to fit my need. There are some today that say they are Christian and they follow God. And yet they, they proclaim that, that lifestyles that are clearly, clearly shown in the scriptures to be an abomination to God. And yet they say that I follow God and that I love God. But that's not really what that scripture means or that it's not relevant in this day. The Bible is very clear. God does not change. That which he hated in the old, he still hates in the new. By the way, things like uh, you know, sexual deviant lifestyles and things like that, it is shown in Leviticus. But we also see it over in the New Testament as well. Jesus declared that marriage is between a man and a woman. 
And so we see that the New Testament also clearly spells out these kind of things. And so plotting, you may not think that I'm sitting here and plotting against God, but folks, I'm going to tell you, when we wrestle with things and we try to reason in our mind why it's okay to do this, when we clearly know that the Holy Spirit is speaking to us, telling us it's wrong, then you and I are also plotting against God when we elevate our desires and our wants over top that which is clearly drawn in the Scriptures. And so it's easy when you hear a message like this about them plotting in vain. You're thinking, yeah, them sinners out here and those atheists and all those other people. But yeah, maybe you're sitting in the pew doing the same thing. Listen, I'm going to tell you right now. The Bible is not a self-help book to make you feel better about yourself. You see, the simple thing is, is one of the problems that people have in coming to God, one of the problems they have with surrendering to Christ is, is being able to, to understand in their mind that they are fully depraved, that, that we are just outside of God, no good. That anything that we do that is good, that God would declare good, we do with his help, not of that of ourselves, because you and I are selfish by nature. If you don't believe that, hang out with a two-year-old. Amen? Mine, mine, mine. How often do you hear that? Mine, mine. Take a toy away from a two-year-old and see what happens. They will have a meltdown. Right? They'll have a, just a complete meltdown. Sometimes teenagers have them too. Hmm. Oh. How do you like that one? Teenagers have them too. Sometimes they act like two-year-olds. Amen? They say, I'm grown up. I can do it my way. I'll do it my way. I know better. You don't understand. You don't know. That's what our kids tell parents all the time. You don't know. You don't understand what I'm going through. As if we haven't been a teenager. As if we've never had to fight against peer pressure. As if we didn't experience life and bullies and all that other stuff. It's been the same because man is the same. And man, when left to his own vices, will plot against God. Think about that the next time, young people that you try to go against mom and dad and what they're telling you because God has given mom and dad the authority over you. And the scripture is very clear, and that message is coming soon to a church near you, that God is very clear about how we are to respect authority. And you see, we live in a culture and a time now where it's okay to question everything. The schools are teaching it's okay to question your parents. Listen, not in my house. I don't know about you, but I, I declare dad law. Y'all know what I'm saying? Now, my laws are not holy like God's. But why do we have laws? Why do these things exist? Yet, how often do we see a young person try to plot against their parent, try to hide something or sneak out, do all these things, and in their mind they go through this whole process, and they reason in their mind why it's okay to do this because mom and dad don't understand, and I won't get caught, and all those other things that happen. And listen, that's still yet you and I, as we follow Christ, find ourselves doing the same thing. Plotting, reasoning in our mind and in our intellect. The Bible says we are presenting our bodies a living sacrifice. Having our minds renovated. And no longer set on the things of the world, but set on those things which are God's. And having this mind in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. And then the next verse says this, The leaders and the people take counsel together against His anointed. That's Jesus, by the way. It's a capital A. In the Hebrew, it's the word Messiah, which is where we get the word Messiah. He's talking about Christ here. The people take counsel together. As if there's some kind of power in numbers. There's something about having company that makes people think that the wrong thing is okay. And that God's going to be okay with it. Well, if we all get together and we declare this right, then God's got to say, He's not going to trash us all, is He? You ever had a group of friends? Well, if we all do it, they're not certainly going to kick us all out, are they? I tried that once. I spent two days in in-school suspension with all my friends. A couple of them got in trouble for talking and ended up with a third day. I at least finally learned to keep my mouth shut at that point. I thought, surely we all do it together. They'll not give us all. 
Suspension? Yeah, they will. But there's something about when we come together, like if we get a larger group of people, and that's what the world is doing today. Can you see that? How people are trying to latch on to a group? And so we, we bond together with these, with these smaller cells and make larger cells, and surely if we become big enough and our voice becomes loud enough, they'll have to change and they'll have to do something. We see it happening in our country today and in our government. But listen, it doesn't matter how many people you get together. When you go against God, it will not change his mind. And he will not change to suit you. And listen, if everybody has bonded together to plot together, thinking they're going to make a difference, listen, they are going to be, they're going to find out that they're absolutely dead wrong. And unless they come to understand who Christ is, when I say dead wrong, I mean eternal death. The final death. An eternity separated from God with pain and suffering and no hope of ever, ever getting out. But let me tell you something, folks. I believe it's an eternity with no hope, yet eternity of knowing the truth. You see, when Jesus told the story of Lazarus and the rich man, the rich man lifted his eyes in hell and he was in torment. The rich man had his wits about him. He had his intellect. And he asked that somebody from the dead be go back to sin, back to his brothers, because if they would see somebody from the dead, then they would believe and not come to that awful place. Isn't it terrible that it took a rich man going to hell to finally have a heart and know the truth? And listen, as the scripture tells us, that rich man today is still in hell, still there. We have groups of people that want to believe that hell doesn't even exist. The, the book by Rob Bell that was made popular several years ago, Love Wins. And he says, how could a loving God have hell? And how could he send anybody there? He is a loving God, but he's also a perfect God. And he demands perfection. Now, he knows that you and I cannot achieve it on our own, so he gave us his son to cover us with his righteousness for all those who will submit Yeah, God loves us, but yes, he will send someone to hell. Why? Because we reject his son. What would you do to someone who rejected your child? What should we do? I thought about this and I thought about, yeah, we could talk about big numbers and we could talk about all the different groups today that have gotten together and that are creating chaos in our lives and in our country trying to take away freedoms that we have because it doesn't align with what they want. When you see all this chaos that you have today, it's because all these different groups want power for their group and they want laws changed for their group. They don't care about the other groups. They're trying to say that you don't love us and because you don't love us, we got to fight one our way. But all they're doing is becoming big hypocrites because they in turn are also spewing hate. Trying to challenge other people saying that they hate. And all we end up is with a bunch of hate. Dr. King said, hate never, can never do anything. Hate will never bring us together. Hate will never make us see each other in the right light and see that we are all created by God in his image. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what ethnicity, what color, it doesn't matter. God has made us all in his image. Hate can never get you there. But love, love can. Love can change the world. But that's not what the world would give us today. But I thought about all the different groups, but, you know, maybe all of us sitting here today, we're not a part of those big groups. But then God laid a scripture on my heart about a husband and a wife that came together to plot against God, to have their way. That may happen in your home. You may not be a part of these other groups and not associated with these other groups that are spewing hate and trying to get laws passed and trying to say those who teach the, the supremacy of Scripture and those who declare what God says is true and that marriage is between a man and a woman and, then all, and all the other things, but that happens to be a big one that we see today. Those people are saying those of us who hold to that Scripture 
are full of hate. We may not belong to those groups. But listen, it can happen right in your home. Husbands and wives, we can come together in our own home and our own marriages and do the same very thing, plot against God. Why? By putting our desires for what we want for ourselves above that which God says to do. We can plot against one another in our home. We can plot against folks who live in our home. Or we can simply come together and plot against God. Either way, we're not following the scriptures because I can't love you and honor you the way the scripture says and hate you at the same time. It just can't be done. And so if you would turn to book of Acts, I'm going to set the story up for you. We're just only going to read verses 7 through 9. There was a guy named Ananias. And if you read through the first couple chapters of Acts, you'll realize that some amazing things were going on. You got to realize that a lot of people from outside of Jerusalem had come into Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. And so Pentecost is 50 days after um, suddenly. The Passover. That was a close one right there, brother. Got to start making better notes to myself, right? Pentecost is, the Penta is for, it was the Feast of Pentecost or the Feast of Weeks, right? Is 50 days after um, uh, the Passover. And so a lot of people from out of town would have been gathered in there for the big feast. And guess what happens on the day of Pentecost? You know the story, right? The Holy Spirit comes down. Uh, and people were hearing uh, Peter preach in their own language. I mean, it was just amazing, right? That's where we see tongues introduced, uh, and, but it was known languages, right? They were able to hear and understand in their own language, and it just, it was amazing. And over 3,000 souls came in that one day to believe in Christ. But after that, what happened? People were going out and they were selling. The people that had extra property and things like that, they were going out and selling these things to bring money in so that they could take care of the folks because people didn't want to go home. I mean, such an amazing thing's happened. People are staying in Jerusalem. They, you know, they, there's something going on here. And so people were out and they were selling things that they had extra and selling them off so that they could bring that money and that money could be used by the early church to feed folks, house folks, do all the things that you need money for. Money, by the way, is not evil. Money's not evil. The Bible says the love of money is evil. And so Ananias and Sapphira were a husband and wife team. And they, I guess, wanted to be a part of what was going on. I mean, think about it. Revival's going on, man. They want to be a part of this thing. But they decided in their hearts, you know what? We're going to go sell this piece of property, but we're going to hold back some for ourselves. By the way, you ever hold part of, back, part of yourself? We say that we're giving it all to God. We're saying that we give God all of our life. But are we really doing that? Are we holding out part? You know, I give him a little bit of my life, but he's not the main thing. I got these other things I got to focus on. Listen, if he's not the main thing, then you need to be listening. And so Ananias come in and he's, you know, and, and brought the money in. And they said, did you sell this land for such and such? They, he said, yeah. And he had lied because they sold it for more. And kept part back for themselves. Now listen, I believe Ananias would have been fine if he had just said, yes, I kept a certain amount of back because I need some money. They may have got on to him a little bit. Ananias, don't you trust God for your supply? They may have done something like that, but at least he didn't lie. But Ananias lied. Yep, this is what I sold it for. They're like, why are you tempting the Spirit of God? And listen, bam! Well, that got your attention. I saw some of y'all wake up. Good morning, sunshine. We start at 1030. You may not know that. But bam, Ananias fell dead. And they drug him out and buried him. Now, this is where they break into the rest of the story, starting in verse 7. It says, after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. 
<clears throat> and Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Mm. That's harsh. But listen, we don't plot against God in any way, shape, or form. But they together. And so when we think about plotting against God together in a group, we think, well, I'm not a part of those hate groups. I'm not a part of those things going on. But listen, it could happen right in our homes. Because I'm going to tell you right now, my wife is an encourager. And I can tell you right now, I would not have the, I have a good job. I really do. I mean, part of me wanted to be a full-time pastor all my life. I am a full-time pastor. I just have a part-time job that happens to be full-time. But I have a great job. I get to work from home, travel a little bit every now and then. Since COVID, I hardly travel at all. I absolutely love it. Matter of fact, after the first six months of COVID, I hadn't traveled in six months. Slept in my own bed every night for six months. It had been years since I did that. I don't think Sal liked it, but I thought it was great. I snore occasionally. So she says. Even if you get recorded with an iPhone, don't mean it's you. Because somebody could clearly hold that phone and go, right? And make it look like it's you when you, if they time it right while you're breathing. Not that she would do that. But I, Sal was a great encourager. You see, I remember the first time I got offered a job. Anybody ever been offered a job you know clearly, clearly that you're not smart enough to have? Anybody? Am I the only one that's ever been given a job that I clearly, I was clearly out of my league? Hey, man, thank you. Brother Randy's up there, got two hands up. I, he's either a touchdown or he's agreeing. <laughs> one or the other. For those of you online, he said he agreed. I just got a job that I just clearly, and just not, you know, why in the world, I, it's just out of my league. I said, Sal, I've been offered this great opportunity, but it's just out of my league. I just don't think I can do it. She goes, well, they must think you can do it. It wasn't offering you the job. I said, what if I fail? She goes, what if you succeed? Yes. By the way, that's how marriage is supposed to work. We don't tear one another down. We build each other up. She goes, what if you succeed? I said, but what if I fail? She goes, did you find this job? She goes, yeah, you'll find another. You could always go back and do the same thing you was doing. Somebody will hire you. This company obviously wants you. And so I remember stepping out. Okay, I could do this. Got offered another position later. Sal, oh my goodness, this, I, I'm definitely not cut out for this. She goes, you said that last time. But look at you now. You can do it. Just encourage But what happens if I come home and I want to do something that's ungodly? And out of her love for me and her desire for me to be happy would actually agree to something that's ungodly. You see, that's how easy it could happen. We could agree together to go against God. Saying, well, it'll be all right. We really don't need church. Or we really don't need that. We really, you know. Now I could tell you that I got a godly wife who would never do that. Because God has given us a love for each other that we can challenge each other from time to time. And we do. And we have. When we feel one another is, is out of place or not seeing things in the right light, sometimes we have to help each other get their feet back onto the ground. So while you may not be a part of that big group, it could definitely happen in your home. So before we start looking at other folks, let's look within. And then verse 3 says this. I know what you're thinking. He'll never get through all these verses. Verse 3 says, let us break the bonds and cast away their cords. What are they saying here? What they're saying is that somehow God's laws are holding them back from being who they think they could be. We don't want these laws. These laws burden us down. These laws hold us back. These laws don't allow me to be the person that I think that I want to be. And they're saying here that look, these people are plotting against God. They come together to plot against God. And they're saying at this point, we just want to break free from the bondage that God would place onto us. Which is exactly the opposite 
John chapter 8, verse 34 and 36, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you are free indeed. Let me tell you what I'm free from. I'm free from having to cover a lie. Anybody ever done that? Anybody ever lied and forgot exactly what you said? Right? People that lie, they will lay awake. Okay, i got to make sure I remember how this goes. Start making notes to yourself. You know what's bad if you make a note to yourself because you lie. I'll tell you another thing. I'm free from hangovers. I'm free from having to worry about going out there and see if my car is still there. And if so, is it in the right pieces in the right place? Tired of having to worry. I don't have to worry anymore about whether the law is going to come looking for me. I'm free from having to be enough for the world to be happy with me to be accepted by them. I mean, think about that. People are out here and they're doing everything they can to be accepted by the world. And the world will say, yeah, we love you, we love you, until you do one thing that they don't like. And cancel culture says, that's it, now you're out of the club. I was watching a thing about the whistleblower on Facebook. Anybody read any of that? See any of that? How they've actually got statistics that prove that depression is increased, and specifically teenage girls with Instagram. The problem is, is when they become depressed because they're starving themselves and doing everything they can to look like those people, those influencers, if you will, that are on Instagram all the time and always pop up in your news feeds or whatever. I don't have Instagram, I don't know, but I'm sure it's just like Facebook. These things pop up all the time and you're seeing people that, 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 that are prettier than you as far as how the world measures beauty. They're shaped different, all these things. So we see young ladies that are starving themselves, trying to do everything they can to look like that. And it causes severe depression. But you know what the problem is, is when they get depressed, they look at it more. When depression occurs, they find out that the usage and the time spent looking at it actually increased as the depression increases. And they know this, and they've done nothing about it. To know today that I'm free from all that. Listen, is there a part of Huff that wants you to love me? Absolutely. Is there a part of Huff that likes to hear a good job? Yeah, absolutely. But I want you to understand today that the King of kings and the Lord of lords loves me and He accepts me as His own. He covers me with His blood that He shed on the cross. I don't need you to love me because God loves me. And He's enough. He's enough. The world will accept you as long as you can do something for them, but the moment that you do not, they will cast you out. But let's look at God's response. Verse 4 starts God's response. It says, He who sits in the heavens laughs, and He holds them in derision. I mean, it's not like God's up there doing a belly laugh. <laughs> that is awesome. That's hilarious. That's not what He's doing. He's laughing at the notion that someone would even think for a minute that they could somehow have victory over Almighty God. The one who knows all, sees all, and can do all to somehow think that I can shake my fist in contempt to Almighty God realizing that He is the King of kings and He's the Lord of lords. How could I ever do anything against Him? He laughs and holds them in contempt. That's what derision means. Like, really? I heard one preacher say this. It's like, it's like somebody shaped like me going up to Michael Jordan and challenging him to one-on-one -on -one and tell him I could win, I could beat him. Well, first off, I'd be out of breath in the first minute. He towers over me by about eight or nine inches. And the simple fact is, I stink at basketball. What would make me think that I could go up against the greatest basketball player of all time? I don't want to hear arguments after church about Kobe or anybody else, LeBron James. It doesn't matter. Who makes you think I could go up against the best and even have a shot? If I looked at you and told you, I challenged Michael Jordan to one-on-one, -on -one, and I laid $10,000 down on that bet that I could beat him, you know what your next thing you would say to me? You'd say two things. First off, <laughs> you're stupid. Second of all, where'd you get ten grand? I heard of a bank being robbed a couple of states over, and I want to know where you got it. 
But that's the kind of laugh. The laughter is not laughing because he thinks it's funny. The laughter is a, is a response at, really? You ever said that to your kids? Really? You, you want to do what? You're considering what? Really? He laughs and he holds them in contempt. You see, God is, God's not worried. I even messed up my notes. I think I forgot his word. God is not worried. He's not sitting up there pacing back and forth. What am I going to do? Huff is plotting against me. He's got groups together. He done got Kevin and Renee on his side, right? Mary's trying to tell him to stop, but Aim won't stop. And now he's trying to talk Sal into it. And oh my goodness, what happens if they all decide to plot against us? This is going to be awful. God's not doing that. He's like, really? The created thinks that they could go against the creator and win and have victory. That's laughable. H.V. Charles called it the divine comedy because it's laughable to think Yet how many of our, in our lives have done this very thing where we want to challenge God because we don't agree. God, why do I have to do this? This ain't right. We've all said that we've been through some tough stuff the last two years. and It'd be very easy for many people here today to, to say, God, this, just make, this ain't right. To question him as if he doesn't know what he's doing. There was a famous Roman emperor, Diocletian. David Guzik talked about him in a message that I was listening to, so I went and looked him up, and then I went to Dave Guzik's commentary, which is a really good one, by the way. He said, a famous example of an opponent of Christianity was the Roman emperor, Diocletian. He ruled between 245 and 313 AD. He was such a determined enemy of Christians that he persecuted the church mercilessly. i got to find an easier word my next time I do this and fancied that he had defeated Christianity. He set up two monuments on the frontier of his empire. They were found in Spain, by the way, with these inscriptions. The first one says, Diocletian, Hovian, Maximus, Hercules, Caesarus, Augusti. Wow, long name. For having extended the Roman Empire in the east and the west, and for having extinguished the name of Christians who brought the republic to ruin. The second one was the same name. I'm not going to try that again. For having everywhere abolished the superstition of Christ, for having extended the worship of the gods. But this is what David Guzik writes in his commentary. Diocletian is dead and gone, a footnote on the pages of history. The fame and glory of Jesus Christ is spread over all the earth. Most of you have never heard of Diocletian until right now. Or maybe when you was in school, maybe maybe he mentioned his name or saw something. He's not a, a ruler that typically is, is brought out as some great leader. But I read in, in one uh, historical document that I found that he was known to take anywhere from 40 to 60 Christians a day and just do terrible things, gouging eyes out, cutting off feet, banishing them to the mines after he crippled them, using them in the gladiator games, all these different things that he would do to them, just, just no mercy whatsoever, thinking that he was somehow going to extinguish the gospel of Jesus Christ. It didn't happen then, and it won't happen now. But then God's response, which is in verses 4 through 6, it says this, Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on, my, on Zion, my holy hill. Think about that. He will speak through his wrath and they will be terrified. Do me a favor. Follow me in the, in the scriptures this morning. Turn to Revelation chapter 6. Let's see. Let's see what John saw as he was exiled on the Isle of Patmos. 
and being given revelation of Jesus Christ. So in Revelation chapter 6, starting at verse 12, it says, When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth. The moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll and is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the king of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who was seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? You see, there are folks who may shake their fist today. But there'll be a time where they won't. Because God will speak in His wrath and in His fury. And God says, I have set the King on the throne. His Son, the Anointed One, the Messiah, the Messiah. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 8 through 11, it says, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by the becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. At some point, all of creation will bow. At some point, everyone, all of creation, it said in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, will all bow to Jesus, the King. Because God has set them there. These other kings and these other leaders that we see that are trying to take countries uh, into terrible places and to call out as if God is just some kind of footnote himself, as if his word is just some kind of document that you can take or leave certain parts. But some of it's good and some of it, well, that thou shalt not murder, that part's okay, unless it's an unborn child, right? And you take these things and you're like, they'll try to twist it to their belief. These kings and these leaders will take a stand and call out those who will stand for the supremacy of the word of God. But listen, they may be a leader now. They may be a president or a senator or a monarch in another country. But realize today that God says, I have set the king on the throne of all of heaven and earth. And every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that he is Lord. Washington, D.C. doesn't have a chance. Rulers of all the other nations, no matter how much power, do not have a chance. Because God has established his king and set him on the throne. It's his beloved son. He says, my begotten. You see, now in Psalms chapter 2, verses 7 through 9, Jesus speaks of his father's decree. We'll cover it quickly. It says, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son today and I have begotten you. That means Jesus was not a created being like you and I are God's creation. He is begotten, it means of the Father. We know that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, these three bear witness of each other. One in three persons. He says that Jesus is his begotten. And this is Jesus speaking. You are my son today. He's speaking of what God has said to him. He says, Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession and you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. You see, what the world doesn't see today, they see strength in numbers. They see the more that they can conspire against you. Well, there's a term today called intersectionality. Look it up. Intersectionality is how people will, they, they take a look at, at a person and, and, and their being uh, and how they uh, identify with certain groups. And the more groups that you can identify gives you more power. So it's one thing, let's say, let's take women, for example. Right, we know that, that wages in the workplace have often, you know, there's been a disparity between 
the same office, or whether it's a male or a female, it's a, it's a, we see that, we know that. So being a woman, well, that's one box checked. Well, then you're a different ethnicity. Here's another box checked. Well, then, then you start putting in you know, sexual lifestyles and other things that are other than normal. Then you check more boxes, intersectionality. The more boxes you can check, the more power that you have. Because if I don't get the job I want or something's done to me that I don't like, then I can claim the, that I have this power. And so it's all about power today, but we realize today that when we compare ourselves to God, we are like just a piece of clay pottery. Rob Lohr was over, went over to the Middle East and was a contracted firefighter there. Uh, and he brought back uh, pieces of pottery. Uh, and he gave me a piece of pottery and this, also this, this blanket from there. And I still have it. It's, it's really cool. And Lord knows how old this, this piece of pottery is. But when you look at it, it's so fragile. You take that clay and you work it into what do you want to be, and then they fire it up in a kiln and it hardens it. The thing is, as it becomes hard, it also becomes brittle. And so imagine taking an iron rod against a delicate clay vase and what would happen. You see, we are fragile. We're fragile. We're like a, we're like a clay vessel. We didn't create ourselves. We were created. And the creator is like the iron rod. And he will dash it to pieces. In Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 16, it says this, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it, called Faithful and True, and the righteous he judges makes war. And his eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many diadems, and his name written that no one knows but himself. And he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called, called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword to which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with an iron rod and he will tread on the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty and on his robe and on his thigh the name was written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Jesus is coming back again. And when he comes back it won't be like the first. The verse he came is humbled, born as a baby in a manger. Humble means, born to a carpenter. Matter of fact, when you look at uh, the fact that they, was, uh, you know, they were to talk of the town, because there was Mary pregnant. She was betrothed, which means she was already engaged to Joseph, and Joseph was going to put her away privately because back then when you were betrothed, it took a divorce even though you hadn't gotten married yet, hadn't had the ceremony, you were as good as married when you were betrothed. And so they were talking of the town because here's Mary, pregnant with what she calls a baby given by God. Can you imagine that? Yeah, sure. You imagine the talk that went around, the scandal as it be. But when he comes back this time, he's coming back in a fury to make war with the ungodly. And he will be victorious. You see, the fact that God laughs at these things, the fact that he laughs and holds them in derision gives me comfort and gives me peace. Why? Because when people come against us, when we're holding to our Christian views, when we're holding to the supremacy of Scripture, when we're saying that this book is truly inspired by God and it's inerred, it is without error, and we get made fun of and we're told that we don't really understand what it says or that what it says is outdated and God needs to get with the times, when we're made fun of and we're persecuted for this, and listen, in our country, we don't know persecution. We haven't really seen it. The worst persecution we get is somebody making fun of us in the workplace or somebody gives us, oh, you're one of those. While we have brothers and sisters around the world that take their life in their own hands, but just by attending church, and church is secret. They all go by different ways and methods to get there, to come together, usually in hiding somewhere. They come together because it's illegal to meet. It's illegal to call yourself a Christian. It's illegal to have a Bible. And yet, 
we have easy access to all of it. And guess what? People want to throw it away as if it's nothing. Jesus is coming back to make war. But listen, the final, the final verses say this. Now, therefore, O kings, be warned. O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and with rejoice and trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Think about that. It's a warning to the kings and the people. Be warned. Serve the Lord with fear and trembling. It says, kiss the son, lest he be angry. That kissing of the son is not a, it's not a romance kind of kiss. It's not even really an affection type of kiss, although we should have affection for God. It's the kiss of submission. You ever watch movies? Uh, you know, uh, if you go back, I, I was watching a, a show about the Borgias. Um, and Rigoberto uh, Borgia became the Pope, I think, in the 1400s. And in that movie, they were seen, and, and I've seen other, uh, and I've seen commentaries on this, that those who come in, you know, to contact or, or come in to, to meet with the Pope kiss his ring. A sign of submission. Because the Catholic Church believes that the Pope is an agent of God and has the ability to speak and create canon in himself. Obviously, we don't believe that. But also, if you watch another, uh, enough of uh, mob movies, I'm a mob movie fan. There's something you didn't need to know about your pastor, right? I have the Godfather trilogy on like several different formats. Electronic, DVD, and VHS. Okay, which one do you want? Sometimes I want to go back in time and we'll just pop a VHS in, you know. I love mob movies. But when they wanted to show submission and, and ask for mercy, they'd fall down at the feet and they would kiss their hand kiss the ring of the mob boss. It's an act of submission. Psalms 1 tells about the blessed man who meditates on God. Did you really get that, the difference? I mean, the same word, haga. But in one instance, it's shown as someone who's meditating on the laws of God, who delight themselves in the law of God and meditate on them day and night. And the same word over here uses plot. One is spending his time thinking of the beauty of God and holding the laws of God in highest regard. And the other one using his same mind to plot in a way that elevates himself or herself above God. What's going on in your brain? How is Haga being used in your life? Are you meditating on the things of God and following Him? You see, when He says that we are to love the Lord God with all our heart, mind, and soul, and love our neighbor as ourself, I can't say that I love God and treat you like trash. Matter of fact, John says so. In 1 John, it says that if we say that we love God and hate our brother, we're a liar. God calls us to do some difficult things. He, he calls us to praise Him no matter what, no matter how difficult the storms. We are to praise Him no matter what we're going through, no matter how bad it seems, we are to praise Him. We're to love those who spitefully use us. We're to love those who hate us. Those are difficult things to do. It's difficult sometimes, let's just be honest, it's difficult sometimes to love God when we know that He has the power to move on our behalf and to move things in a way that we want it, but we have to trust Him that there is a purpose for it. The devil likes to come to us in those times and say, yeah, God loves you. Why is he, how can you say He loves you when you're going through this difficulty, when you're going through this difficult time? Listen, having faith in God is trusting Him even when everything else around you is falling apart. Trusting Him, loving Him, and trusting Him enough to know that if I love you, even if you don't love me, even if you treat me harshly, if I will love you and show you respect so that I bring honor to God. I find sometimes I have to love people just because God has called me to, because I don't find anything else in it that's joyful, 
I don't find else, anything else in it that looks like it's going to give me some kind of return on my investment, if you will. But I know that when I love the unlovable, when I love those who hate me, when I love those who do me wrong, I know that it brings honor to God and I'm laying treasures up in heaven. Are you meditating on God? walking in his ways and in the areas of your life that you're struggling in are you asking him for help in those areas because you don't want to make an excuse for yourself you want to honor god you want to walk in his ways and you're asking him for strength and help because that's what someone who meditates on god does it doesn't mean we're perfect it doesn't mean we struggle but we can't be okay with it and we can't make excuses for it because that is what the people in chapter two do people in chapter one they delight in the ways of God. They trust it and know that it has a purpose. The people in chapter 2, they want to be God. They want things their way. And they're not going to be happy until they do. Where's your mind? What's your response today? Would you stand?